0: welcome this is the sales iq podcast my name is luigi prestinenzi and i'm in a mission to help salespeople be the best sales professionals they can be each week we'll bring you a different message from thought leaders from around the globe so we can help you master the art of selling today we are joined by an absolute legend of the sales and professional development industry This guy's had a massive impact on my career. I read his book when I was about 19, and it's really helped shape the salesperson that I've become today. He's a global speaker at many events and conferences. He speaks on topics such as attitude, mindset, authored a number of books, and is regarded as a sales and marketing expert. Please welcome Jim Cathcart.
1: Well, thank you. And it's great to be with you, Luigi. I I miss Australia. I've been there 10 times, been all around the country, except for Perth. So let's put that on the list. Uh, You know, I've been to Darwin. I've been to, uh, I've climbed Ayers Rock. I've done, you know, a lot of things that a bunch of Yanks have not done. And I totally love that country. Um, My background is professional speaker and author, in the field of human development. I, I decided in 1972 that that was my dream. That's what I wanted to do. And I was 26 year, years old at the time, so I'll save you the math. I'm 71. And um, I was, I, I'd been moving from job to job. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I was already grown up. Had a wife and a, a little baby at home. And it was time to start a career, but I d- hadn't chosen a lane. And I chose professional speaking and training in the field of personal development. And my mentor was a guy on the radio, much like you are right now, Earl Nightingale. He was considered the dean of personal motivation, and he was on 900 stations all around the world. And so I followed his example and learned from his materials. I bought recordings that he had done, which back then were on audio cassettes and records and i listened to him for hundreds of hours hundreds over 5 years and in the course of that time my thinking evolved to a much higher level and I, my life changed radically and i got into the field of personal development and started teaching other people's courses at first and then developing my own and now 40 years later i'm you know i've been a full-time professional speaker for four decades. I've been around the world many times. I've delivered 3,100 paid engagements, written and published 18 books with the world's largest publishers, and um, been president of the National Speakers Association, and every award that they give to professional speakers I have been privileged to receive. So I'm living an absolutely charmed life, And yes, I worked hard and took a lot of lumps and had some big disappointments along the way, but it's been worth it. And I love what I do.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Jim. That's awesome. And you can actually hear the love and everything that you do shows how passionate and committed you are to professional development. And uh, the fact that you had lumps over the way just goes to show why it's so important to use that positive mindset. You mentioned Earl Nightingale and um, I had the privilege of seeing some of his stuff and this guy, what he was able to do back in the day when there wasn't the marketing means that we have today, he was able to sell the amount of content and copy was massive and it just goes to show how powerful his message really was. Um, Can you tell us what influence did he have On your career and is that what inspired you to write the acorn principle
1: yep earl was um a philosopher he had been in in the insurance business and in broadcasting and succeeded in both and uh, developed a, a message one day for his sales team a group of insurance people that that he was going to be out of town and unable to lead the sales meeting so he developed this message and recorded it on a record went into a studio and cut it onto a you know a, a vinyl record and left it with his team and said play this for the guys you know when they come in for work on Monday morning and that message was called the strangest secret strangest secret being that how you think really does shape your world the uh, way he stated that was you will become what you think about in other words you'll be drawn toward the kind of result that your thinking would lead to so if you think negatively you're going to get negative results if you think positively you're going to be drawn toward positive results if you think cheerfully, you know you can see it following on from there well that message was so popular that people said, can we play this for our friends? And can, you know, the friends said, can we get a copy? So we ended up going to a, uh, a record producer and producing a bunch of copies and distributing them. And RCA Records, which was the big mother of all record companies at the time, they discovered it and they said, we will publish it. It's the, it'll be the first non-music album we've ever published. Or a recording we've ever published. And they did it in a big, I think it was 78 RPM back at the time. For the for the newer listeners, RPM means revolutions per minute. That's the speed of the turntable that played the record. And um it sold over a million copies. Wow. And Luigi, that was the first motivational recording to ever become a bestseller. Wow. Yeah. And so it was his example that I followed. You know, he ended up getting on, onto the radio every day doing a little short program called Our Changing World. And he formed a publishing company and created training materials for companies. And it was called Nightingale Conant Corporation after him and his partner, Lloyd Conant. And Lloyd was the marketer and Earl was the mind and the voice. And they went out into the marketplace and made millions. And one of the uh, things they had in their company branding was a little logo of a person within a person. It was a silhouette, and inside it, another silhouette. And years later, when I became a professional speaker, I was developing a logo, and I thought, I like the feeling I got from his logo, but I don't want to use his. And one of the stories that I tell is about, it's just a joke, basically. I I talk about an acorn that was wanting to be a giant redwood tree. (laughs) And so it went to redwood camp and it read books on redwood skills and it had mentors who were redwoods. And it still ended up becoming an oak, but a very depressed and morbid oak because it (laughs) was trying to be something it wasn't designed to be. And so that became the organizing story for my book, The Acorn Principle, and the acorn principle is you already have within you the seed of your future success. But it may, may not be the succeed or the seed that you're dreaming about. It might be something different. So spend a lot of time figuring out what you're good at, what you're naturally gifted for, what you love and enjoy, what comes easily to you. And then restructure your life and your work and your career to get yourself using those skills more and more and more over time. So you tailor your life in reverse to fit who you are. And that way you're tailoring it forward at the same time. And uh, you're more likely to succeed at what you're naturally good at, of course. So that's the way the whole thing evolved. And I had the honor and privilege of meeting Earl Nightingale And um, years later, I was partners with Dr. Tony Alessandra, a good friend of yours as well. And Tony was a college professor and I was a professional speaker. And he said, how much are you making when you give a speech? And I told him, he said, oh, my God. He said, it takes me all year to make as much as you make in a couple of months. I think I want to get into your business. (laughs) So so, uh, he said, I'll teach you what I know about marketing if you'll teach me about your business. And I did, and we became best friends and then business partners, and then for five years worked together, collaborating on things, and wrote books and published audio programs. And while we were partners, and by the way, we're not partners today, but we're still best friends. Um, While we were partners, I got a phone call one day, and I picked up the phone, and it was the voice of Earl Nightingale, which I had heard on the recordings and on the radio so many times. But this voice said, may I speak to Jim Cathcart? And I said, gulp, (laughs) Uh, 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 this is he. (laughs) And he said, well, this is Earl Nightingale. I said, I know. And he said, I just read an article of yours that I think would be a good audio program. And I said, well, sir, the article you read is an audio program by Tony and me. He said, well, send it to me. I publish those. I said, oh, believe me, I know. And um, I sent it to him, and he called back and said, "I'll take it if you'll re-record it." And we re-recorded it, and he sold three and a half million dollars worth of that album titled "Relationship Strategies for Dealing with the Differences in People." Wow! In the first two years, he did he sold three and a half million dollars worth in 1984 and 85, and it was the first audio training program ever produced on the face of the earth. On the subject of personality types.
0: Well, wow, so that must have been a real honor for you, given your. Ah, you
1: oh, that was, uh, it blew me away. It was the second greatest honor of my entire career.
0: That's fantastic. There's so much in that. And one of the things that I've taken from that, Jim, is that, you know, really live the, or design the life that you want by doing what you're passionate about is from the ACORN principle, something that's really standed out for me. So yeah.
1: thanks for sharing that. And make sure you're suited for it. You're welcome. Make sure you're suited for it. And if you're not, find resources or other people who can help so that you do become good at it, not personally necessarily, but, you know, in your endeavor, you become good at it. Yeah. Because it could be that software or a partner or a affiliate or a, a special tool or, you know, something else could, could do it for you.
0: Yeah. And so tell us what motivated you to write relationship selling, and I, and I say this, as, as I ask that question, I'm looking at your original book. Mm, the 1980s. In its original format, not the not the redone one, the original format.
1: Right. Yeah, the original one. Well, What motivated me to write it was an awful sales experience. I had a failure experience as a salesperson. When I first got married, I got married in 1970, I'm still married to the same wonderful woman today, Paula. <laughs> And um, I got married and and my first job was selling mutual funds and life insurance door to door to businesses and and individuals. And I hated the way I was taught to sell. I I believed in my product. I loved the fact that I was able to help people. But the way I was taught to sell was to spend all day calling on people that didn't expect to hear from me and to recite a memorized sales pitch. Okay. And I struggled with that for a year and a half, and I was just barely making enough to pay the rent. And finally, I accepted defeat and quit. Yep. And years later, after I had done a number of other things and then gotten back into sales and succeeded in selling and in sales training, ultimately, I wrote a book. The first book I wrote was called how to be your own sales manager. And the reason I wrote it was I'd been managed so poorly before that I wanted to show people you don't have to settle for that. You can be your own sales manager, be smarter about it and you'll increase your sales results and your existing sales manager will be happy because of that. And Tony and I were partners when we wrote that book and Ironically, the company that I had failed at selling for, they bought from Tony a thousand copies of our book on how not to do what they were doing.
0: There's a bit of sales redemption there, isn't there, Jim?
1: Absolutely, and they had no idea that I had used to work for them. (laughs) (laughs) And then relationship selling came along later when Tony and I split back into being separate businesses He focused on personality types and I focused on relationship selling and, uh, you know, went that direction and then bought a psychological research firm and did some other things.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And one of the things really uh, I want to stress is that, as you know, rejection is part of sales. We can't be successful in sales without having rejection and rejection occurs on a daily basis. Um, However, many people struggle, as you know, dealing with rejection when it comes to sales. Um, what advice do you have or can you provide on how to develop a positive attitude and mindset when things don't go to plan?
1: Well, I would say first reframe the the making of new calls. Stop thinking of them as cold calling because cold implies that there, it's an unfriendly, unwelping, unwelcoming uh, energy that's taking place between you and them. Yeah. And, and I'm not suggesting you, you do the, the childlike thing and call them warm calls because that's just silly. Yep. I'm suggesting that you replace the name of the call with what it actually is. Don't call it a cold call. Call it a new call. Yep. Or if you want to call them this, call it first call. Yep. But it doesn't have to be cold. Just make it professional. And the purpose of a new call is not to make a sale. That's the ultimate goal you have in mind. The purpose of the new call is to find out if there's a sales opportunity there. Yep. If there is a way you can be of service to this other person. And if you go into each new relationship, each new contact with the question in your mind, is there an opportunity here? Is there a way I can be of help to this person? Then you go in with a helping energy. And you're not seen as a threat. Instead of going in and saying, I'm going to talk until you buy. Yeah. Which is completely selfish. Instead of going in that way, you go in with the attitude. I'm here because I know how to help certain people. Let's find out if you're one of them. And if now's the right time for you. If it is, you're going to be really glad I called on you today. If it's not, then I'm going to go on and call on somebody else. But let's stay friends because someday you might need me.
0: Yeah, that's gold. You know, this is gold advice. And helping energy is what I've taken away. Preparation and actually totally. the call. And there's so much debate, um, Jim, at the moment. You probably read it. You know, this whole cold calling's dead, social selling, um, AI, yeah. changing sales. And But what I'm hearing from this is, the, the call starts with our, our mindset our attitude it's how we approach a certain situation totally. and having that helping energy um, has just really really resonated for me there so again thanks for sharing
1: that Thank you you bet well, by the way on, on pardon the interruption but uh, relationship selling the whole idea of relationship selling is that you treat a relationship meaning a human connection. As a manageable asset, yeah so you don't think of relationships as being nice to people, you think of relationships as a human connection, yeah where value is exchanged back and forth, and the value may be friendship, it may be support, encouragement, recognition, you know problem solving, it may be buying, it may be you know there's a thousand ways you can convey value back and forth. But a a relationship's a direct connection in which value is exchanged. So if you think of selling as a way of helping, and you think of relationships as simply a a contact that at its early stages is nothing more than a transaction, like you would have with a kiosk, and at its highest level is a lifelong friendship or a partnership, well, there are many many stages in between those two and those are manageable stages if you're on top of your career and intentional about what you're doing so you you approach selling in such a way that it is a helping profession and that changes changes everything
0: yeah fantastic and this is perfect for my next question which is again i mentioned earlier you know the ai the yeah. The world of sales is changing, and you just mentioned human connection. In your opinion, how important is it to have relationships with your buyers, and what should we be doing in sales to add value to our customers?
1: Well, first off, the, uh, the concept that social selling, meaning selling through social media, is um, making face-to-face selling obsolete, is absurd there will never in human existence be a time
0: Absolutely. When,
1: when there's not the need for humans to make direct personal connections with each other. Because that's the only way we can develop trust and provide value. Now, you can certainly build a business online and do a lot of transactions that way. But there's a limit to that. At some point, there's going to be A decision that's going to require a much higher level of trust. Yeah. And that trust cannot be earned through an impressive social media listing or a bunch of videos. It's got to be person to person, whether that's through a webinar or through sitting in the same room together or through a coaching process that you do with someone either over video or in person. But it's got to be eye to eye because that's the only way we come to truly trust someone else. I don't trust digits. I trust patterns I see in digital communication, but not so much that I would put a large investment into it. I need that human quality. I need to hear your tone of voice. I need to see how long you pause as you listen to me. I need to feel whether there's a a sense of, Understanding and caring in what you're saying to me, you know, those are the qualities that can only be conveyed human to human, and our media is simply a vehicle that is a reasonable facsimile of a human connection, um, not as good as face to face human connection.
0: Well, oh, what a response, Jim, and and you you mentioned trust. Um, talk to us about trust and. And, and why is trust such an important part of the, of the sales process? Well,
1: trust is the only thing that causes someone to part with what they own. You know, it's, it's the only thing that would cause someone to, to open their doors or their information to another person and trust has levels like my son who I'm absolutely adore my son and I would give my life for him. Okay. And that's always been the case since the day he was born. So when he was born, did I trust him? Of course I trusted. him. (laughs) Did I trust him to if he wanted to go across the street and play with a friend? Did I trust him to go safely across the street? Absolutely not. So what I would do is I would lift him into my arms, have 100 percent physical control over him and walk across the street and then set him down to play. As he got older, I would have him stand by my side and I would have a death grip on his hand and wrist so that in an emergency, he could not separate himself from me as we walked side by side across the street. As he got older, I'd say, walk with me, look both ways, and I'd let him walk without me holding on to him. And then as he got still older, I would say, look both ways, be careful. And then as he got older still, I'd say, how was your day? Same thing's true in business. Yeah.
0: It's a real nurturing part of the process.
1: Mm-hmm. No trust at all at first until you've got evidence. You know, you give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Give them a little bit of room, but not a lot of room. You don't say, here's my social security number in the U.S., you know, and, and here's the key to my bank account, and this is the key to my home. It's nice to meet you. No. You know, you say, nice to meet you. Let's meet at a coffee shop. That way you don't know where I live. You don't know anything about me except my physical presence and whatever you've learned online. And we can see whether we want to trust each other more than that. Same thing true in dating.
0: Yeah. What happens when, you know, like you're a customer, you've got a great relationship and things go wrong and then that trust uh, barrier is sort of broken or challenged?
1: Right. It goes, it returns to zero. See, that's the thing. It's like my, my son, when he was a teenager, I, I had a situation one time where um, I asked him, I said, where were you last night? And he said, oh, and he made up some kind of a lie. <laughs> and I said, no, that's not where you were. What was going on? He said, well, you know, and, and, and he told me another lie. And <laughs> I, sa- I said, Jim, and he's Jim Jr. And he was a teenager at the time. He's 47 now. I said, <laughs> um, I said you've got a problem. He said, what, what's my problem, Dad? I said, you're lying to me, and I don't know why, but I do know this. If you break your trust bond with me, and I don't know when I can trust you and when I cannot, then all the privileges that I've given you in the past, all the freedoms that have been yours in the past, will be immediately and totally revoked and only given back one at a time very carefully, over an extended period of time. He said. Well what if. If if when I tell you the truth. It gets somebody else in trouble. I said well. Then you need to ask yourself. Who's more important in your life. The other person or me. He said well dad. Here's what Bob did. You know and he immediately spilled the beans. Okay. And at that point I said you're completely forgiven. No problem. Just. Don't withhold the truth from me. The truth is always the best news, even when it's bad news, because at least we can do something about it if I find out bad news early. If I find out when it's too late, I can't do anything to help. And you also end up breaking the trust bond. Well, the same thing's true in business. If I earned your trust over time and then I let's say my product doesn't perform and I try to lie about it. Yeah. Then you're going to stop buying from me and you're going to stop taking my calls and you're going to tell other people bad things about me. If, on the other hand, my product doesn't live up to standards or someone in my company drops the ball and we make a mistake and I'm the first person to call you. Luigi, yeah. I, I have some disturbing news. We made a mistake. And we owe you an apology. I just want you to know about it. And I want you to know I'm on the case and I'll make it right. Or if I had a moment of weakness and I did something that was inappropriate or or untrue in my dealings with you, then I need to come to you as soon as I realize it and say, hey, mate, could I could I talk with you for a second? Yeah, I owe you an apology. You do. Why do you owe me an apology? Well, this happened, and here's what I did, and that was wrong, and I apologize. Yeah. Because without the apology, it never gets better. Yeah. I had a, a, a publisher who was publishing one of my books who went like seven or eight months beyond the first royalty payment and never communicated with me. And I sent a few messages, hey, what's up? You know, how have sales gone? Do you have a report that you could send me? And I was getting limited or no responses. And finally, I sent the message. I said, are you in financial trouble? Are you avoiding me because you don't have money? If so, don't you realize we're in this together and I'm your business friend? So reach out, darn it, and let's talk. And within two weeks, I had a check. Yeah. And an apology.
0: But how did that make you feel that you had to be proactively chasing them versus them?
1: It reduced the trust by at least 80%. Okay. Whereas previously, that person could have called me and asked for something, and I would have said, sure. And, you know, like shipping something and and not waiting to be paid in advance, I would have done that. Yeah. Because the trust was there. Now it's, well, how are you doing? Tell me about your financial situation. Okay. When will I get this check? Yeah. Or, uh, no, I'm going to need part of that in advance. Right? So that's the thing. You know, it, we've got to be proactive and we've got to be honest and real with people Because they will give you the benefit of the doubt. And if they don't, they're a jerk and you probably didn't want to do more business with them anyway.
0: Yeah. And I suppose this is how we differentiate ourselves from our competitors, right? Because the fact that we've got the relationship, there's no core reluctance, you know, things in business, things do go wrong. Right. And so what I'm hearing you saying is be truthful, be proactive, apologize first, bring that objection up first instead of waiting for them to bring it up.
1: Absolutely. Don't ever allow yourself to get caught. Catch yourself out loud in front of the other person first. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that's something, you know, somebody called me one time and said, if you don't do such and such, I'm going to tell people about whatever. And I don't remember what it was, but it was something that it would have been embarrassing to me. And I said, hold on, let me put you on hold or on speakerphone, while I call the other people and tell them myself in your presence. What? See, I'm the worst person in the world for anyone to try to blackmail. Because if I had done something wrong and they said, I'm going to tell your banker or I'm going to tell your wife or I'm going to tell whoever, you know, the first thing I would do is call a press conference and announce it to the world myself.
0: (laughs) One of the things that I'm hearing is the difference between the transactional and the relationship, and you talk about it in your book um, and that truth and, and is, is, is so relevant here for the conversation. And one of the things in your book I want to get your um, opinion on is you talk about behavioral flexibility in building relationships. Can you expand on this and tell us why it's important when building relationships?
1: You bet. So if you only behave in your usual ways – then you're going to get along with all the people who are just like you. Yeah. Well, how many percentage-wise of the population tend to be just like you, or at least a great deal like you? Yeah. The answer is going to be 25 percent or less, probably. Well, if that's the case, then you've just alienated 75 <laughs> percent of the world by being inflexible. Yeah. So you know, so when, when well, let's let's use the four personality types let's say that your type is is the the dominant, the, the director type. You know, you like to run things, you like to be in charge, you're kind of blunt, and you get right to the point, and you move quickly, and you focus on the task instead of a lot of chit chat with the other person. Yep. Well, that's fine as long as you're with other people like you, but you sit down with an accountant who's a detailed person, a bean counter, and wants to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and make sure there's not any empty spaces on the spreadsheet, and you use your usual style, they're going to get annoyed and feel threatened because you're not taking the time to talk about the details. And they only feel safe when they see that all the details are being handled. Mm. So you have to be flexible with them, slow down a bit, reassure them, provide data to back up your claims. Likewise, they, in dealing with you, have to summarize things and get to the point and move on instead of dragging things through all the laborious steps in the process. And the same thing's true on the other two behavioral styles, which would be the what I call the socializer, which is the highly interactive style, yeah. and, and the relator, which is the, the very um, interpersonal, you know caring, relating, sharing, and warm and supportive type. You know, those two types are the ones that focus first on the relationship, whereas the other two types focus first on the task. But both of them will ultimately get to the task or to the relationship. But you've got to learn to appreciate that your style is your strength, but your style is also your limitation and your weakness when it comes to people who aren't like you. Okay. so listen to them, pay attention and ask yourself two questions. One, how does this person like to receive information? Do they want me to first become their friend and relate to them and share and visit and then we get to business? Do they want me to tell stories and let them talk and and listen to them and laugh at their jokes first? Do they want me to get right to the point and get on with it? Bottom line. Do they want me to be detailed and precise and prepared and methodical? How do they like to get their information? Second, how do they like to build relationships? Well, the dominant style builds relationships based on outcomes and progress, movement, right? The interactive style builds relationships based on interaction and enjoying each other company while moving forward. The relator style, the, the very steady type, Tends to build relationships based on getting to know each other, being supportive and encouraging of each other, understanding each other, then moving carefully along with the yep. with the task. And then the the uh, the thinker style, which is the highly compliant, um, conscientious type. That person does it based on doing what's prescribed, following the rules, getting it right the first time.
0: Yeah. And and just on that, the couple of things we can do to define that style, because obviously, you know, whether it's on the call or we're face to face or something, we've only got a short period of time. What are some basic things that we can do to determine which style they are?
1: First thing is just be observant. When you go into a new contact, go in as a listener, go in as an observer, like a doctor, you know, a doctor in an emergency room at a hospital is trained to go into the emergency room and notice everything first. Yeah. In other words, don't just look at the patient or the wound or the illness or the symptoms, but look at the room as you walk in. Are there other people in the room? Who are they? Are they specialists? Are they family? Are they emergency personnel? First responders? Who else is in the room? What else is in the room? What kind of equipment is in there? What kind of, you know, what kind of clothes is this person wearing? It, uh, what position is the person in on the operating table if that's where they are? Uh, You know, notice those kind of things. And then as you notice the patient, notice everything from their eyes to their breathing, to their body, to their wound, to, you know, all of that. And only then can you start to make the right decisions about what to do. Well, a salesperson should do the same thing. And I'm not saying go into the office and notice that they have a, a, a hunting trophy on the wall and things like that. Fine, that's good. But the main thing you want to notice is what kind of office does this person have? A neat and tidy workspace? A chaotic workspace? A very expressive look-at-me workspace? A friendly, welcoming environment that feels like home? A strictly functional workspace that's just all about getting the job done? You know, that tells you something about the person. And then listen to what they say and how they say it. And notice how fast they move. And whether they're focused on the job first or whether they're focused on you and them first.
0: Fantastic. And from your experience, when we are flexible, how much does that impact the sales result with the customer? Oh,
1: Lord, that's almost like when you take control of the driving of the car, how much better does it go <laughs> to the place you want it to go? And it would be 100%, yeah. right? It's, it's that big of a deal. Because if you just go in with a well-practiced sales pitch and deliver it the same way to every person, 25% of the time, those people will probably find it interesting, but it will bother them that you sound mechanical. Even if they're like you, it will bother them that you sound so mechanical. You need to be telling the truth. And the only way they're going to know you're telling the truth is if you genuinely engaged with them and not just reciting yeah. what you think are the buying points of your product.
0: Yeah. So I'm hearing authenticity um, is key to flexibility. Yeah. And is this stuff we can practice? I mean, I know that I, uh, Jim, my experience with this is, I mean, I was a, a D if we look at the DISC model um, and I had a real challenge building relationships with analytical thinkers, you know, the guys that needed mm-hmm. the numbers because I was such an expressive and I just wanted the outcome. Um, it took yeah. me a long time to really build my capability to to build relationships with the others. What are some things that we can do um, or can we practice stuff so we can be better at this?
1: Yes, definitely you can practice because every day you interact with dozens of other people, you know the barista yeah. at the coffee shop, the person at the <laughs> at the gasoline station, the you know all the various people you interact with every day. Start a daily habit of trying to notice which, is the dominant behavior pattern in each one of them. When you're sitting in a restaurant and, and you have a chance to observe the other guests in the restaurant and the servers, yeah. try to try to observe the patterns in them. In your own family, talk about it. And talk about other people you know and see if you can identify, you know, Uncle Uncle Herman is one of these and Aunt Edna is one of those. And uh, Jasmine is one of these and so forth. Talk about the people, you know, and discuss what is it about their behavior pattern? What is it about the way they act that tells you this is their preferred style? Now, the the trouble is, too often we try to read beyond the behavior, but the behavior is their way of telling us what they want because if i come into your office and i'm behaving in a very impatient way yeah. it may not matter what my behavioral style is usually cuz my pattern right at that moment is telling you director high d dominant i want results yes. movement bottom line don't bog me down in details if i come to you and i'm being very precise and very careful my thinker pattern my my you know highly, highly compliant or conscientious um, pattern is telling you, let's make sure we get this right because I'm feeling threatened. Yeah. So you can observe it, but you need to practice it day to day and make a game of it Yeah. and do the same thing with your family and your kids and, and, and your spouse will enjoy it too.
0: And again, it's, it's all about the mindset and the attitude, isn't it? It's, it's how we go about applying and wanting to, to change and adapt.
1: And and you can get a recorded program or or take one of the online courses from Sales IQ or or you know, get my my book Relationship Selling. Any number of resources that will tell Thanks you for more. The plug, Jim. About that, you're welcome. I, I'm very impressed by <laughs> Sales IQ. What a, what an amazing organization you've built, and what a wonderful complex of of uh, value courses and services you provide.
0: Oh, you know, if someone
1: signs up for your two day course and they get with that, the coaching and the online resources, that's some pretty serious life enhancement because they're going to get better not only, you know, before the two day meeting, but at the end of that meeting, they're going to be blown away. And then over the next 32 months they've got support and coaching and other resources that will walk them all the way through that final three-hour webinar.
0: Oh, perfect. And I'll put those in the show notes for anyone that wants to go and have a look at our courses, Jim. But uh, <laughs> that was a, a free plug, so thank you very much. But look, I, I know that with time and coming down to the last question before we, we get you to, to play a quick song for us, but I want to ask if, if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice when it comes to selling and building relationships what are a couple of things that you tell yourself?
1: Wow. Um, let's see. That's that's kind of hard because I live with this so much every day. But I think the, the early me was I felt I had to do exactly what my sales manager said. And maybe I <laughs> did to keep that job. But I felt like th- they knew how to succeed and I didn't. And, and uh, so I was going to follow their formula for a while. Well, I did. But I did it just long enough to feel bad about myself. And instead of blaming the formula for not being right for me, I blamed myself for not being worthy or qualified or capable. And so I went through a long period of several months where I felt like I just, I'm not able to be a good salesperson. And I discovered later that I've become an exceptionally good salesperson. I've been inducted into the Sales and Marketing Hall of Fame in London, and I've written nine books on selling, some of which are used as college textbooks. Fantastic. So evidently, I know how to sell, uh, but I thought I didn't have the capacity to be be good at sales. And it was just mindset and wrong approach.
0: Yeah, it's it's a common thing, you know. Even Paul J. Meyer says that. And even when he was failing as a insurance salesperson, he was still the best salesperson there was. Um, and that mindset that he took into it. Um, yeah. And look, before we get you to play us a song, um, can you tell our listeners where can we find more about you? What, what, what website, books? Where can we get?
1: You bet. If, if they know my last name, they can okay. find me almost everywhere. C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T, it's a Scottish location, Cathcart, Jim Cathcart, and cathcart.com is my website, Jim Cathcart on YouTube, Jim Cathcart on <laughs> Facebook, Jim Cathcart, Cathcart Institute on LinkedIn, my company is Cathcart Institute, you go to Amazon, go, you know, I'm out there, big time. Fantastic. So I'm easy to find and I'm eager to be of, of help yep. to whoever you've got. So please contact me by the way com has 730 pages wow. of free resources including videos you yeah. can watch
0: and I'll tell all my listeners you got to get into this stuff this is one of the biggest influences in my career this book with a with a Gittimore book one of uh, your mates jim um, you know those books Thank were you. pretty pretty had a massive impact on my, on my sales career. So, so look, if we could ask you, obviously, when we were in San Diego, heard you play a, a fantastic song, and I, I think you've got something for us that you can quickly play.
1: Thank you. I've been to cities that never close down To New York, Chicago, and old London town But no matter how far or how wide I roam. I still call Australia home. I <laughs> love <laughs> Australia. What a wonderful well, country! Well, thank you so got.
0: much, Jim. We really, really appreciate this. Um, and I'll I'll put some show notes out there so that people can go and have a look, um, find your books, um, and then when and, and again, we'd love to have you on, on, on the show again. There's so much we could talk about. So thank you so much, Jim.
1: Happy to happy to do it. And tell them to go to Guitar Music Live. .com if they want to hear my music.
0: Okay, fantastic. I'll make sure of it. Yeah. So, thank you so much, Jim.
1: Take care, my friend.
0: See ya. See you later. He came, he shared, we learn, and now it's time to implement. One of the things I listen personally to podcasts every day, two or three every day. When I listen, I sit there with my notepad or notes on my phone, and I take down key messages that I've heard. And often I go back And listen to it again because yep I love listening to podcasts but why do I listen to so many podcasts every day it's because I want to get better at my craft I want to improve the relationships I develop with my customers I want to help customers more I want to get in front of more prospects because the more prospects I can engage with the better chance I have of crushing my quota so My challenge to you is not just to listen to this awesome information, and there's so much out there that you can listen to every day, it's free. My challenge is how are you gonna implement? What are you gonna do immediately to make that change? Not just to sell, because remember, selling is a byproduct of everything else that we do in the pipeline. So again, What are you going to do to improve your day, become better sales professional and ultimately help more people?